nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn. Borrowed up our closer Abertow. Hello everyone, welcome one hour early to The Twilight Show. And tonight we're joined by Ben Kingston Hughes to talk about his book, Why Children Need Joy. Uh, so it is all about increasing levels of joy for our children, highlighting the catastrophic damage that a declining joy can cause, especially in a post pandemic world. So tune in, talk it out, off we go. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Borrowed up help, Kroisoy Abertawi. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea, welcome to the Twilight Show. Just a touch early this week, uh, but we have an exciting show ahead of you. Now as I say, we're joined by Ben Kingston Hughes, uh, and we're going to be talking about his book, Why Children Need Joy. Now I'm just going to check that Ben's on the line and can hear us. Ben, are you there? I am here, yes, Nathan. Oh, yeah. Sorry, you panicked me. For a second there, the joy drained away from me and I panicked, but you can hear me okay. <laughs> I can hear you fine. Can you hear me? Yep, you're coming through loud and clear and, and and that's fab. Now, as I say, we are going to be talking about your wonderful book. We're going to be you know, getting into some of these kind of concrete strategies, the, the, the kind of thoughts, the ideas, the the philosophy maybe the, the science behind it all but before we get started I you know I think it'd be really great for everyone to to sort of hear a little bit about you know who you are what you currently do uh, and, and what's kind of brought you to this point okay so um I work with vulnerable children so I'm the managing director of inspired children and uh, we don't specify a vulnerability we just go wherever there is a need so we work with um disabled children and families uh we have a lovely project where we work with newly adopted children to help them bond with their new families we do outdoor play with them so we go out in the woods and we make fires we climb trees um so that's half of what i do the other half is that um Several years ago, we realized that vulnerable children's sessions don't always uh, quite often make a loss. And in order to keep funding that, I started doing training. I started doing keynote speeches. Uh, I started writing stuff. And so kind of the, the academic side of it funds the, uh, the vulnerable children's sessions. Uh, so that in a nutshell is, is where we are. Um, and I've been doing it now for 34 years. So um, yeah, so it's just been a long time working with children. Wow. And, you know, I, I find it really interesting, you know, what you described there, because, you know, it, it sounds like in, in some of those situations, it could be, you know, a very ch a challenging situation, you know, some, some very, you know, important, but, but hard work that, that you're doing there. And so, you know, this idea that you are a proponent of joy, a, a proponent of that, that positivity, um, is, is really interesting to me. Do, you know, do you find... Um, that that is really important in the work you do? Um, I mean, it's more than important. It's life-changing for some of our children. But 
for years, I, I've almost I, I've known it was happening, but I've, I've not been able to really articulate it. Um, I'm a play specialist. So for those who don't know me, um, I, I write books about play, I write articles about play and, and I use positive play with a whole host of different children of all ages. But there was something kind of undefinable that I was seeing in children that, that had had no joy or had the joy taken away from them. I, I kept seeing these little incident, incidents where it would just be a, a, a total transformation for a child. And it could be something so simple. Um, and for years, I kind of thought about it, but never thought about writing a book. And then something happened on one of our adoption activity days that made me realize that maybe I could write about this. Um, so we were making magic potions. Uh, it was a, a wonderful little thing between adopters and and, uh, and the young children. And they were making magic potions out of green food coloring and glitter. And uh, this is already a really positive moment. So me and my staff have already started to step back because we've got this wonderful bonding going on. And the point of these projects is actually to help find forever families for children. So this is a really lovely moment between an ad a potential adopter and a child. But what the little boy doesn't know is that our potions are going to light up because we've got, well, it's a torch in a box. It's the cheapest light box that you'll you'll ever see. It's a very cheap bit of kit, just a torch in a box. But when you put the potion on the box, it glows. So the little boy puts the potion on the box, doesn't know it's going to light up. And then out of nowhere, this green food coloring and, and glitter potion just glowed. And he got so excited by it. He started shaking. And eventually he shook so hard with excitement that he squeezed the potion as hard as he could. And, and as you probably guessed, it shot out and hit the adopter right in the face. So there's green film colouring glitter all over this adopter. He's wearing a white shirt as well, which didn't help. He kept saying, uh, oh, it does wash out, doesn't it? I'm going, yeah, of course it does. It doesn't. Of course it doesn't. But then there's a moment of hesitation. They both burst out laughing and it, genuinely the loudest, most beautiful laughs ever. And then at the end of the session, that was an expression of interest that did lead to a forever family for that child that singular moment of joy. And that's when I knew that maybe it isn't just a nebulous abstract concept. Maybe I could write a book about joy because this is real. It's so real that he had to react in a visceral way by squeezing that potion. Uh, and so that led to me starting to explore the neuroscience of joy, the biochemistry of joy, and just those moments that change children's lives and how we can apply that to all ages of children uh, and in any setting as well. Now, uh... I, you know, I wanted to ask about this because, like, I read a lot of education books. I read a lot, of, you know, child development teaching books. I try, I try and read across. And I had a revelation whilst reading this because so many of the things that you you describe in the book, I was like, yeah, you know, I've I've been so you know inspired when I've seen other practitioners do things similar, and and, and you know that is definitely something that I want to know more about and and uh, put into my practice um but I, I really struggled then to think back and think right have I read another book where or even a chapter in a book that, that's talked explicitly about this um now th does that surprise you you know I wanted to ask do, do you think there's a blind spot maybe for teachers at the moment or maybe the curriculum around this aspect of education well, when I first went into researching the book, I, I was coming at it from the perspective that there was no writing about this. There was no research and that I was going to be trailblazing and coming up with new things. But actually, if if you dig deep enough, there are some really interesting studies that, that explicitly mention joy. Um, so um, there's some wonderful stuff by Dr. Judy Willis, who talks about joy, joyful approaches to education. And she's looking at sort of primary and secondary school children, saying that these are not just optional extras this is but the primary way in which children learn and she backs it all up with neuroscience and you know in fact multiple neuroscience studies for all of her, her her assertions so it is out there but no it's very hard to find and so for instance 
I do a lot of work with early years and the uh, the word joy is not mentioned once on our early years foundation stage. It's not mentioned once on national curriculum. Um, although I did have a, a, a podcast recently actually with an Australian psychologist and she was telling me that the New Zealand's version of the EYFS, the earliest foundation stage, has got five mentions of the word joy. So it is, it's not, you know, it's not always omitted, but in our country, it does seem to be, it's not mentioned ever in any kind of teaching practice. I do a lot of guest lectures on teach training courses. Uh, it's, it's not mentioned there. So yeah, it is, there's, there's not much out there, but there are a few really lovely little studies. Because um, it does surprise me because, you know, I have two I have two young children myself, you know, a, a four year old and a six year old, particularly the four year old. When I think about his education and he, he's very lucky, he has like many wonderful, you know, sort of early years practitioners I've worked with or even sort of lower primary teachers as well. They've, he, you know, when I sent him to school, I, I want it, the joy to be there. That's one of the, the key things for me. And there, there are other bits and pieces. And, you know, my older child moves up the school as we go and you know maybe there's going to be more formality there and certainly my experience of working in primary schools and then into secondary schools is that 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 formality sort of comes in and that that maybe that um the 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 things that make early years education so special to me uh, start disappearing off and you've mentioned already a couple of times there about all ages so i wanted to ask you about that do you, you know do you think that the children or their teachers grow out of playing curiosity or is it something that we should be holding on to? I think that there is a, a tendency for us to almost make children grow out of it by, by how we handle it. Um, it and it, the, the urge to play is universal. When we do our training courses for adults, so, you know, we do teach training courses, we actually get the adults playing and, and the joy that you'll see from a bunch of primary and secondary teachers running around pretending to be superheroes. It, it's still there. They've not lost it. And it's just about reminding ourselves that actually our children need this as well. Um, it's interesting because I've worked in lots of different areas. So working in inner city projects, I used to work on uh, adventure playgrounds. And in those areas, they were such an integral part of the community that your 15 year olds would come up and say, what we're we playing today. They wouldn't use the word play with any kind of stigma. That was perfectly natural because they had gone from age two all the way up going to a play environment. But then when you go to other areas, it's almost seen as when you're older, that the older children don't play because play is seen as, as childish and frivolous. So I think it's more society than it is the, the individual children, because I think everybody needs to play. And actually doing inter intergenerational work uh, we've got a four-year-old playing patty cake with an eight-year-old you see just how valuable players for the eight-year-old it's actually making their brain healthier so i think there's a stigma attached to play but i think rather than not using the word play we need to reclaim it and, and say play is for all and the joyful approaches are neurologically incredibly sound for education as well so you all remember the teachers that you had in your own childhood the ones that made it fun and they're the ones that you actually learned more and you often made your choices of your options based on those teachers. And so now we know why that happens neurologically and even simple things. Like if you're enjoying what you're learning, if you're interested, if it's novel, you automatically give more of your brain's resources to that task. So you are automatically increasing your capability and increasing your ability to remember stuff. It, it's, it's instant. It's filters in your brain that make you focus more if you're enjoying it. So none of this is rocket science. But it is the stuff that we, we need to, I don't know, re, recapture for our children because it is the most effective way in which they learn, as well as being massive for all the therapeutic stuff that I deal with. 
Yeah, and, you know, the way you describe it certainly, as I say, you know, some of the the, the teachers I've worked with um, over the years is it's you know I, I I personally have seen the benefits of, of approaches like this with with um, uh, young people and as you say of, of all ages and um, I I wonder you know you mentioned the uh, the early years curriculum there and and um, the the lack of this word is it is it a case then that we need to uh, reclaim the word joy, you know, and the, and I guess in that sense the word play, because when you were describing play there, you know, I, I, I've talked to um, some lecturers, some some, some organisations like Play Wales before about some of the work they've done around play, and and they don't mean child. They don't, how do I word this? They're not talking about being childish necessarily. They're talking about things that we all do, the way we interact, and I I know in your book the way you describe adults interacting with the young people and keeping this openness that, that I see very much and this curiosity that we, you know, is part of early years provisions, hopefully yeah. across the country. Um, so, you know, when you say joy, you know, you, we've, we've said it a lot, it's in the title of the book. What, what is it you mean and, and what is it we should be looking for? You know, what, what defines that to you? So that was my first job, really, was because I, I was worried that people would think it was nebulous or that, you know, maybe I've had a midlife crisis and telling everyone to go hug a tree. So what I but wanted to do, chapter one, was define what joy meant to me. And that was based on the experiences of what I'd seen. So I'd already written my book about play. So I'd got that background. We talked a lot about the brain in my book about play. But there were obviously people asking for a second book. And I, uh, I didn't have an idea for a second book until that day on that adoption day. And then I knew I knew what to write but I knew I had to define it. And so what I've tried to do is break down joyful experiences so that you can apply them in, in your settings and so you can see them with your children. And so the first aspect of any joyful experience has to be a level of happiness. That's got to be there. And it's not the meh moments. It's not the throwaway moments. These are the, this is the best day ever moments that, that children do have. And so there has to be an element of happiness, but I've had to be clear as well that it's not always accompanied by big belly laughs and smiles. We do a lot of superhero play with our really vulnerable children. And quite often they they look, they're smiling, they've got big laughs, but sometimes they look really serious because they're so caught up in their superhero persona that they, they're they not looking like they're happy, but they really are, if that makes sense. So that leads nicely onto the second bit of joy. So happiness is, is vital, but you also need to have high levels of engagement. They are not the looking out the window moments. They're not the on board. These are the moments where you're fully there in the moment. Um, and I think I describe in the book a little boy just wrapping up a parsnip in a bit of string with the look of absolute concentration and joy. And it was a really manky old parsnip, but no adult went, oh, don't touch that, it's dirty. He was just following his own interests. And that even that little quiet moment by himself wrapping up a parsnip, that was a moment of joy because he was fully happy and he was fully in that moment. So you've got to have high levels of engagement. So if you follow things like the Leuven scale, it, it's basically Leuven scale to the max. You've got to have the happiness but none of it can work if the child does not feel emotionally safe with you. And that is the key because without that, everything else goes slower. Your development slows down, your learning slows. If you don't feel fundamentally safe and free of anxiety. So that's the platform for joy. And, and I've described it in the book as, as an aspirational rocket, I suppose, in that the happiness and the engagement has, you know, they're the bits that we're looking for, but you need the launch pad. And the launch pad is feeling safe. And I mean that as emotionally safe feeling nurtured, feeling cared for, and genuinely feeling important in your environments. So it's three things, happiness, engagement, and emotional safety. It's really simple, but if you get all three things right, 
that's when you start to see it being absolutely life-changing for some of the children that we work with you know and i'm i'm looking at the book now i'm looking at the the, the joy equation part that you have there and i you know as i was going through it and as as i was thinking how you know how best to explain this particularly you know for some of our listeners who you know i don't i don't want to stereotype there might be you know a, a jaded secondary history teacher there who thinks you know that i've gone all flowery maybe and you know when i when i'm talking about this this need for joy and i i look at some of the words you've got here and you know there's words here you know like you know obviously you know excitement pleasure where i you know i think i could look at them and say look do you you know do you want from your young people them to be you know excited about the 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 history for example that they're learning and i look at the next part and i say you know do you want curiosity and and as i say you know you mentioned the emotional safety part there do you know do you want them feeling valued and suddenly this this isn't uh you know, for my four-year-old, I guess, and 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 that was something that really struck me about this. The way you've broken it down is, it it, it almost takes it from being maybe a, a silly, a light-hearted word, and I don't mean that in a sort of derogatory way. Uh, you know, uh, uh, to becoming yeah, this is a you know, this is a serious and for all, and actually what you've all been talking about, but brought together. Yeah, I mean, that's, that was my aim, because one of the problems with my job in particular is that I do do a lot of stuff that, that to an outsider does look silly. You know, we, we do some very unusual play opportunities. We, you know, we do a lot of stuff that might be dismissed as frivolous. So I spent the first book trying to justify why play whilst on the service looking frivolous is, is not. It's the most important process. And the same with joy. It's it, the moments that are the, 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 the silliest. I, I was doing um, some work with Warwickshire recently and I, I read a report and this is early years but the report was about post-covid children and about how that they've missed out on opportunities how their levels of a play have declined and one of the recommendations from this this very serious report was that young children need more giddy time and i thought that was lovely because that's what we do and an outsider might think that giddy time is is you know it's frivolous but actually now we've got reports saying that um and yes i do think it applies to uh, secondary school history in fact, my mum uh, was a secondary school history teacher um, years ago, but she died a long time ago now, but she loved history and she put every bit of that joy into history, into her lessons. And there are forum groups uh, for people who used to go to that school and they still occasionally mention my mum as being one of those teachers that inspired them. And it was through joy. She loved history, uh, whereas I dropped history because because I didn't enjoy it, because I was bored in the in the lessons. Uh, and now I've come back round full circle. I'm actually starting to really enjoy learning about history. So, um, yeah, it's, it's everybody. It's all ages. It's it's all teachers. It can be done. Sorry, I, 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 um, you know. Have you got I, me? Have you got me back again? Sorry, I lost you for a bit. Yeah, no, it's okay. Don't worry. I, I, I think I might have disappeared there, but I just wanted to ask you about the the part in there. You had um, uh, some parts about the chemicals, about the biochemistry. You know, you've mentioned a little bit about the, this kind of hardwired 
for it there. And I, you know, I found that really interesting. Again, you know, in this juxtaposition of, you know, we're talking about, you know, you use the words, you know, sometimes we talk, it might, it might seem frivolous, but this is, you know, scientifically hardwired in there when these, these chemicals are firing off when we're, we're doing these things. Yeah. And it's, that's the, the bit that fascinates me is that for, for years I've known this stuff is good, but when you start to unpick what it's doing in the brain, uh, I mean, firstly, it's fascinating, but it also gives you ammunition to to justify what you're doing. Uh, and so with the book about play, I, I was looking at the primitive bits of the brain because we share play with all mammals. And it was, you know, painting this picture of these opt optimum biochemicals for well-being. So with a bit, the book about joy, it's kind of it's icing on the cake. We were looking at additional biochemicals, the happiness hormones, they're called uh, things like dopamine and so many different Sort of links between dopamine and, and our experiences of life um and then i was looking at things like endorphins so actual drugs that make you feel high that you only get through certain experiences so yeah so it was a really interesting journey and when you add that to the previous book you've got an entire brain's worth of biochemistry that is the absolute optimum well-being for the whole rest of your life um so there is you know if we get it right you really can help even our most vulnerable children uh, loads of stuff about dopamine really fascinated me. So, like, um, dopamine's your reward system, so you'd get it for eating a lovely meal. But what we don't realise is the, the odd little things that might cause dopamine. So some people get and feel a reward if they solve a sum, for instance, but but not everybody. So it's really subjective. Some people get dopamine from housework. There have been studies that prove that. Other people don't. So it's whatever works for you, and it's finding what gives that dopamine. And lovely example of that is poetry. Because the completion of the rhyme sets up that little sense of completion in yourself. When you hear, uh, you know, a good rhyme in a poem or in a, in a children's story, that is a little hit of dopamine. That's your reward system. So you actually get a little bit high on poetry. And that's why children love stories that rhyme. It's not just about embedding short and long term memory. It's also about making them feel really nice because a really well crafted rhyme gives you a sense of pleasure and floods you with these wonderful biochemicals. So there's lots of different links to, our, you know, to our practice with children. And I find fascinating, you know, I, I love the, some of my favorite books. I mean, things like um, the dinosaur that pooped a planet. I mean, it's, it's about, you know, poo really it's, it's, you know, but it's crafted so well because the, the authors are musicians as well. They've created these wonderful rhymes in it. And you get a genuine sense of satisfaction when you read that, especially to a big group of children all shouting the word poo, um, which links nicely onto the chapter on humour that, that I also put in the book, because a lot of children's humour is about poo. But yeah, the, the beautifully crafted lyrics or lines give you a sense, a dopamine hit, which is awesome, isn't it? Well, I, you know, you you say you know you say you say poo there. I have unfortunately in my house at the moment had to set up what we what we refer to as the poo jar because there are so many with two young boys, so many mentions of poo and the hilarity that that brings. That I've got a kind of little <laughs> fine fine jar that you know, <laughs> particularly if they use it, you know, when the the mother in laws around or, or, or such like. So we we have a poo jar that is not not full of poo but full of uh, little coins that I'm collecting, which unfortunately I have to pay for myself at, at this size. I seem to be finding myself. Well, yeah. Co collecting a little bit of money to spend on some ice cream at some point for how many times they've said the word poo. So you're not tempted to turn that on its head and actually pay your children for saying poo in front of your in-laws just for the sheer hilarity of it. That's <laughs> something I, I, I would be tempted to do. <laughs> yeah, that, well, no, that would... the the um. The, the the joy you know the, the, as you say, you know it is, it is strange how how some of these things you know are um I, I, 
are just kind of um, across everything, you know. And, and yeah. it's interesting that you described, you know, very early on, you described this example of the the, the kind of uh, bottle exploding, you know, and, and, and that being funny. And I, I do, you know, I wonder, and, I, you know, I'll put this, this is not maybe a question that I prepared you for, but, I, you know, I wonder if there is, for the adults there, a, a level of safety and trust and security that's also needed to to be able to enjoy that moment does that make oh, sense yes. no absolutely it's it's i mean that's basic attachment theory isn't it every aspect of children's levels of exploration and whether that's you know exploring physically or exploring concepts verbally or humor it's all dependent on the adult that they are with they feel safe with so at any point you know this is why we have children who won't speak because they are they have not once felt safe and the only way we can get them to speak is if we show them that we're a different sort of grown-up who's not going to make them feel intimidated so no you're absolutely right and humor is is one of the most incredible shared things and there's all sorts of evidence to say that it's one of the best things to um, bring children out of a dissociative state dissociation is where their brains actually begin to shut down because they're so caught up in the fight or flight responses that that their brain is 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 just it just can't do anything and they withdraw into themselves and we now know that shared laughter with another human being is one of the best ways to get children out of it. so no no it's brilliant but you do need you know and that's that's why I've tried to get across in the book in that that you've got to be we've got to understand that children's humour is not going to be as advanced as the adults and instead of being down on that like some adults are we need to celebrate it because it is a stepping stone. You're not going to get biting political satire from a four-year-old, are you? You know, you're going to go through the stages of the toilet humour, and then out the other end, you might get something that you know that's really important for that child. And in fact, I think I've argued in the book that we probably use humour more than we use any amount of history or or geography. And that's not anything against history or geography. I'm just saying this is a vital social function we use every single day, and yet it's barely mentioned, barely taught. So um, yeah, I don't mind the odd poo joke from children. <laughs> No, you know, I think, uh, you know, as a, it reminds me this this kind of shared, but the confidence that it takes from the adults to be there as well to to, to be accepting of it, because I think there can, there can be a panic. And, you know, as, as I say, with the, the, the saying poo in front of my, my in-laws, you, you know, the blood drains from my face and I panic and then I immediately go into a kind of... Uh, um, you know, control mode, I guess. And like, no, we got, you yeah. know, I stiffen up and then they, yeah, they stiffen up and, and, and that, that kind of robs the joy, I guess, from, from the yeah. situation or the possible enjoyment of the situation. Uh, we're all guilty of it. You know, as parents, I have done it myself. My daughter's favorite word when she was very young was buttocks. And we would play storytelling games. It's something she's loved ever since she was very young. So storytelling games. And we teach these on our communication language training, but they're very simple word games. And she would just wait for the perfect moment and then just shout buttocks. Well, that's fine. But if you're in a restaurant, you instantly feel uncomfortable because you've got the four-year-old shouting buttocks and you now feel you're the bad parent and you find yourself telling your daughter off when actually you wouldn't normally because you're on show so yeah so we've all done it but actually you know my daughter she loved word games and she's precociously good at like that kind of thing even now when she's 12 so it's given her joy so the odd word buttocks i think was fine and, and what a great word to be a favorite word as well my son yeah. then said same same restaurant he said I've just done RE and he says, I really like the word biblical. So my daughter was shouting biblical buttocks at the top of her voice, which sounds like some kind of Christian punk band, doesn't it? It's like, you know, it's a, a bizarre 
thing to hear in a restaurant but no she's quite happy to go biblical buttocks biblical buttocks so yeah there's, there's some kind of part that you know I, I like the sound of that like you know maybe not the the words themselves but they they that that does sound like it's a nice phrase to well, say this, the, this the alliteration is, or something of it yeah and this is really important if you've got children that love words you've got children who want to learn more words if you take that joy away then that's when they start to why would you want to learn more words because if they're not pleasant or they don't give you anything that you know children are not stupid they're going to do what what appeals to them and when you look at the word gap and you look at children that are, you know been missing out on their vocabulary etc and you look at what's missing from those children's lives it tends to be the joyful use of language it tends to be the bedtime stories and this or the silly songs all the jokes all the books about poo or whatever it is but it's the joyful use of language that's actually stopping them acquiring more language because the motivation is not there anymore so if you've got a child that's got favorite words, even if they are buttocks or biblical, that's, um, that's amazing. And that's, you know, um, working with practitioners who don't shy away from big words with, with the, even in early years. And you've got children, you know, knowing proper names of dinosaurs and loving saying, you know, there was one little boy I worked with recently and he, there's a dinosaur called, called um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the Wangchanosaurus. Okay. One, of the new, one of the new breeds of China, uh, discovered in China. That's why there's a lot of these Chinese. And he knew that, age four. And, and he said it with relish, Wang Chanosaurus. Now that is brilliant, isn't it? Because that's joy. And that's what's going to make that child want to learn more words. So, so yeah, important stuff. Um, now, I, I have a question for you. And I think this is possibly, you know, but while we are defining what we're talking about, I, I realise this, you know, looking back through, this is possibly the hardest question I've, I, I think I could ask. But, you know, We've talked about the chemicals. We've talked about this kind of nebulous, possibly, although well-defined within the book, kind of idea of what joy is. But, you know, we I can't measure the chemicals in my in my classroom or in my school as I go around. It, you know, that, that part doesn't help me. So in the moment or, you know, as a leader that, that some people listening will have been, and I've, I've been there myself, walking around school, how do I recognise this joy happening? What, what does joy look like in the children? Well, I mean, you say you can't measure it, but we do have scales to measure things like levels of engagement, for instance. So you've got your Leuven scale and, and other similar scales. So you can see when children are fully engaged in something. So, so you, there is an element that you can measure. Happiness, obviously, that's difficult to measure because you can't see, necessarily see it on a child's face. But I think it, it's more it's more about you know when it's working if you're in in a classroom and you know you you've all i mean I, i've done lots of teaching in my career you know when when it all seems to, to to go come together and you know that those children are learning and it's it's a shared moment i, I think it's it, i know i know perhaps it's not what you want to hear that it's an instinctive thing but i do i do think you all know when a lesson's gone really well when the children have asked absolutely you know searing questions that show they're actually listening to what you're saying or or they've engaged or achieved something that perhaps that they wouldn't have nailed to the lesson before it, it's that it's it's that shared moment and I, I see it so often when we work with children and and yet i also see when they've not had that um i was i was in a school um last year and i was actually this was a consultation exercise so i wasn't teaching i was working with children in primary school to try and find out about lunchtimes to make their lunchtime better by getting children to uh, make up the rules for lunchtime, for instance, or to, to buy the resources. So it was getting them involved. And I said to the head teacher, I said, I don't want your um, school council children because they get all the chances. I just want ordinary children who wouldn't get a chance to work with a consultant. Well, every teacher in the school thought 
oh, I'll tell you what, I'll send Ben the naughtiest child. Sorry, using the N word there, but, uh, you know, and that's it for, for the next three hours. So that's what happened. So I got handpicked children with challenging behavior and I had the best time ever because once you got them engaged and, and joyful, you got loads more of the actual good stuff out of them as well. And I'm not saying it was easy because by the end of it, I was, I was exhausted, but it was, um, it was, it's just really rewarding. And you know, when it's going right, I don't think that's answered the question at all, but I think it's a feeling that we all share. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I, I agree. You know, I have, I have been that leader who's walked around schools and I've walked down the key stage one corridor and, you know, there, 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 there is a feeling, there is a, a kind of um, an ambiance, a, a vibe. I often say is my word, but you know, like you, you can feel everything going well. And I, you know, as I say, I look, I look at some of these uh, parts in the book where you, you know, you, you put words onto it. And certainly, yeah, you know, I, but maybe I, you know, this is where I, I, tr- I try to be more early years based, and I don't need a tick sheet, and I don't need a. a, a uh, a, a matrix to make a decision to make a, a kind of feel and maybe that kind of you know feeling or that that descriptive level is it's a it's my my key stage two um uh, personality in me that's doing that i'm afraid it pulls me back to having a tick sheet where i can feel i've achieved something yeah i don't think the two are mutually exclusive i think that's the lovely thing about about the, the research on joy is that i think you can still be the outcome driven teacher, you can still get incredible achievements from your children, you can get them to reach certain levels, the the use of joy will speed that up, especially for the children that might have been struggling. So it is it's not a case of you're either the, the funky, joyful teacher who throws the rule book out the window, or you're the focused, formal educator, I think you can be both. Because you, you every single teacher in this country has chosen to do that because they they, they love it, they wouldn't do it otherwise. You know, so if you are a history teacher, it's because you love history. And yet sometimes we get children who who disengage because that's not coming across. So those children are not going to reach the checklist or reach the, the, the outcomes. Whereas if you've got the teacher that goes, you know, let, let's try making it fun. Let's try focusing on the, the really interesting stuff first, you know, the, the really odd stuff and then bring it back to some of the nitty gritty. And then we'll see what happens. I don't think you lose outcomes. I think you actually get stronger outcomes for more children. So what I'd really love you know to, to see is that that we we don't think that you you have to be one or the other you can be a joyful practitioner of any age of children and again you know back to dr judy willis i mean she what she said is it's not just conjecture she's backed up every one of her assertions about joy in education with with multiple neuroimaging studies and she's then said there's not one shred of evidence that joyful approaches can in any way ever harm a child but there is evidence to say that there are some contemporary methods of educating that might well exclude or even harm children so you've got nothing to lose but but i think you can do both um yeah no i you know it does lead me on to sort of my next question and and, and this is uh, you know possibly the the, the uh, what you know the only criticism that i've ever had thrown at me for for you know believing in in this way or that and, and it is around this idea you you do say in the book about using easily bored children as a barometer for joy and, yes you know um and and i wanted to ask your opinion on that on that idea you know uh, we can sometimes be accused of um you know education as entertainment and you know teachers you know do teachers need to be clowns and, and i wanted to get your kind of opinion on that you've kind of already answered it i think 
Um, yes. Can I just check? You can still hear me because I just had a, a thing pop up say call ended. No, no, no. I can still hear you. You're Perfect. Fine. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, I have ADHD. Um, I was diagnosed uh, six years ago and for years I, I had no idea, but I've always felt that I got on really well with the children that would have a similar diagnosis. And I've always felt that I, I had an insight into working with those children. Um, so I ended up writing training courses about ADHD, but from a practical perspective, and it was only when I worked with an actual clinical psychologist to help me with the medical side of it, that she said, after about 10 minutes, she said, hang on a minute, have you ever had a diagnosis? But I think because of that, I'm always looking for that child that was me because I, I'm not, um, I, I am quite competent at stuff, but only in short bursts. So I, my attention goes really quickly, even now, and I'm a lot better than I used to be. So I've always looked at, whenever I'm teaching, I've always looked out for the children that are struggling, because that would have been exactly what I was like as a child. And so I've always kind of thought, well, if I can get, you know, Ahmed engaged right now, then everyone's going to be, rather than it being, you know, pitching it just to the, the children that, that are really engaged, pitch it to the child that's not, because you're not going to lose the other children, are you? So I, yeah, I've always done that. I don't think that answered the uh, the question, but um, but yes. No, no, it's it's fine. I think it's 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 lovely sort of hearing the the descriptions of of, of your teaching. It it you know it, I, it it does give me. I, I don't get to teach in primary anymore so much, and like it does make me miss it. Reading the book made me miss uh, like because it, it in my head I think there there tends to be more or more opportunity maybe or you know for it for that enjoyment and you do some give some lovely examples of of, of primary practitioners who, who who really do bring this uh awe and wonder we used to call it where yeah. I, where i used to work to, to the primary curriculum and to the to the early years classrooms where there is a, a real wow and a real excitement but it isn't done just as entertainment i guess no, and that, that is the, the point. Um, and it's kind of how I've had to design my training is that I know it has to be entertaining, but it's also got to make people think. And I think, you know, that that balance of of really interesting stuff and making children genuinely happy to be there. Well, we now know that that is going to make that child use more of their brain's resources to access that learning. So we know it's it's going to work. Um, but I do um, I do a lot of teach training, uh, guest lecturing and stuff like that now. And there's, there was one I've done in uh, Leicestershire area where it was only for early years, uh, new new early years teachers, some reception teachers. And then the next year they said, actually, we think this might work with Key Stage 1. Can we invite Key Stage 1? And so we're now in the fifth year of doing it. And now we have secondary at the same event. So it's a training event based on play. But we're getting secondary school teachers to attend as well because it's this is stuff you can actually use even in the middle of your your you know formal lessons. Um, so I think that, yeah. Yes, you're right. Primary, the, the the most amazing teachers in primary who who just give their children joy on a daily basis, and we've called it the, the tenor in the pocket feeling in the book, which I know is something that you were, you were talking about um, in an email earlier. But um, but yeah, that that is something that yeah, if you get that right, that can be all the way through education. That can be university lecturers doing that, can't it? So uh, yeah, definitely. And I. I... I want to ask you about that. There, there are parts in the book where, as you know, I mentioned earlier about where the, describing. You know, we've talked about the interaction between adults, and and we've talked there a little bit about the the, the staff maintaining the excitement themselves for this learning. Yeah. I, I I really related to that. I mean, you know, maybe I maybe I'm lucky in that I you know I fixate on things and I find things really interesting, and I you know I I I am always 
curious and enjoying stuff and maybe that's kind of a an issue that I have to deal with outside of the podcast myself but you know some staff how do, how do we stop staff becoming you know jaded by our work by by just going through the motions and it's how do we help teachers keep wanting to find that joy I think the, the first thing is just to remind every teacher and this is what we do on the, the teach training guest lectures is um is to remind them of why why they do the job in the first place um and that is you know you didn't get into this job to not enjoy it you got into this job because you love it and and if you can remind them about that, that that starts to bring that joy back in but it's no you know it's not easy you, you there are bad we all have bad days i mean it's it's you know the the outside of your control you can you can you know have a, a car bang on the way into the school and and you've had an irate argument with somebody so you, you get to school and you're stressed you're anxious but, but i think that now we know that your children are modeling everything on you that we know that that stress and that anxiety is not good for the children that's when you kind of have to put on that put on your face that says Do you know what i'm here now and i've got to be the best i can for the children um and i think that's sometimes the hardest thing is i mean I, i've had you know quite a stressful life recently but working with children I, I have to be able to put on the mask and go yeah that because none of that effect is going to affect those children and that's not easy i think that's something you learn over time um but rediscover your joy of, of why you do this job because if that's not there then of course you're going to be not putting it across to children you know we're only human so so that would be my first thing um and then reminding people of how this it does work it's not made up. There are now enough studies to show that if you make your lessons more stimulating, joyful, novel, interesting, then you can actually get children to learn more. They remember more, they use more brain to actually access that information so their capability increases. And that cycle means they desire more learning. And a majority of the biochemicals of joy are actually addictive. So now you've got children craving learning. You imagine the best maths lesson in the world is actually leaving a child craving maths like a heroin addict craves heroin. And that is what you need to remind teachers of, because once you get that cycle going, you've got children are ready to learn, want to learn and actually crave learning. And, and that's all due to the biochemistry. So it does work. So, yes, yeah, so a reminder why they did the job in the first place, because it, it is joyful is information and knowledge. And then remind them that, that if you use these approaches, you don't lose anything, but you could very well get through to a child that nobody else has been able to. Um, so, yeah, no, that is a fan you know a fantastic you know piece of advice i hope there are uh, you know leaders listening who you know either go out and and get the book themselves or or for their school library or, or use some of those phrases to persuade to say look you know this is an approach that works now also a perfect time for us to uh, pause for a second pop to the news and and remember if you are listening live in the studio and you have questions you can fire them at myself or ben and uh, when we come back, we're going to be unpicking some of the, the, the possible barriers, but again, some more really useful and powerful top tips for how to increase joy uh, when working with young people. So, Ben, we'll, we'll see you in just a second, okay? Thanks a lot. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Maths is in the news again, according to the BBC News website. This time, the story is about the pass rate for GCSE resits in the subject. November results show 22.9% of maths entries were marked at grade four or above, 
down from 24.9% in 2022 and 26.9% in 2019. In contrast, the pass rates for GCSE English resits rose to 40.3%, up from 38% in 2022 and 32.3% in 2019. In England, under-18s must retake the GCSE in English and Maths if they did not achieve a minimum of Grade 4. The resits for the recent November series were marked, like the summer 2023 exams, back in line with the pre-pandemic levels. Prior to the exams, some colleges reported they were having to expand class sizes and hire additional exam space to cope with rising numbers of pupils retaking the two subjects. Those sitting the subjects in November are only a subset of the total resitting, as some pupils will not take the tests until the summer. The fall in the maths pass rate comes after government announced plans to replace A-level and T-level qualifications with a new advanced British standard, which would include some English and maths up to the age of 18. Whilst the arrival of the new Ofsted chief made many headlines across media outlets, Schools Week focused on tech issues which prevented many inspectors from accessing training. All inspectors working in schools, FE, social care and early years were due to attend mental health awareness training led by Sir Martin Oliver, which was around 3,000 staff. However, it was announced that Ofsted had experienced some technical issues and that fewer than 1,000 inspectors were able to actually access the online sessions. Ofsted did say that a recording was available so those not able to attend would watch it back. Inspections, paused for the start of the new term, will resume on the 22nd of January. They were not paused in early year's settings. Attendance is in the news again and looks set to be a key focus for all political parties as a general election approaches. In a recent speech to the Centre for Social Justice, Shadow Minister for Education Bridget Phillipson said Labour would pass a law to register and count the children taught at home, adding that it was important that local authorities know where children not in school are. Plans also included setting up more breakfast clubs. The current government has proposed similar in its schools bill, but this and many other aspects were abandoned at a later date. However, New attendance hubs are being launched in London to help reduce persistent absence. The DfE has chosen nine schools with excellent attendance rates to share ideas with others across England. An advertising campaign called Moments Matter Attendance Counts was also launched. Although some aspects drew criticism from some quarters, concerned that the campaign sought to minimise mental health issues. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan said... Tackling attendance is my number one priority. In Wales, teachers at a high school are striking over poor behaviour of pupils and NASUWT in Wales say there are now six schools in dispute over classroom safety. Teachers in Scotland have also raised concerns about deteriorating behaviours. The TES magazine featured an article by Bill Rogers, behaviour consultant, university lecturer and author. The article focuses on possible reasons for what teachers report as deteriorating behaviours in schools and strategies to improve things. These include focusing on describing and insisting on the behaviours needed for all to learn. Also using clear assertive language and calling pupils to account for their behaviour. The full article is available online. Finally, 
The BBC has run an article on the news website focusing on how children and adults can stay healthy at the start of the new term. Officially, January marks the start of the spring term, but winter bugs like norovirus and flu are likely around for several months yet. The article focuses on five top tips, regular hand washing, regular cleaning of high contact areas, staying at home for serious illnesses such as high fever, vomiting or diarrhoea, vaccinations where necessary or applicable, and using the NHS online services to keep informed or to seek advice. Hopefully, a healthy new year will lead to a happy start to the spring term. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea and you find us a show all about joy. In fact, about a book by Ben Kingston Hughes, Why Children Need Joy. And we're joined by Ben with us. Uh, ben, are you still with I us? I am, yes. Fantastic stuff. Um, you know, it's, as I say, I've really enjoyed the book. It, you know, I will read a little bit off the back here. It says, the book gives concrete strategies for increasing the levels of joy in children and highlights the catastrophic damage that a declining joy can cause, especially in a post-pandemic world. And uh, certainly, I, you know, I found, you know, littered with great examples, got me thinking and, and, and really uh, insightful parts, you know, the theories behind. We've talked about the chemicals, the, the um, biochemistry, the neuroscience as well in there. And just off the back of the news, I wanted to ask you, you know, a little bit about behavior in there and, and for a book, I, the part that I was maybe surprised about in the book is there's uh, quite a few parts where you talk about behaviour in the book, and uh, particularly post-pandemic and, and, and for vulnerable children. And I wanted to get your opinion on that. Then are, are, are we getting it wrong in you know increasing our sanctions to invert commas crack down on on poor behaviour? Um, I, I suppose this is is controversial stuff I, I need to be quite careful how how i say this um but the the, the whole reward sanction approach to behavior is based on behaviorism and behaviorism is you know 1950s rats in mazes um and the problem with that is is that subsequent psychology has moved on and in fact modern behavioral psychologists no longer believe that rewards and consequences are effective and that's because humans have got so much more brain than the rats and the dogs in the experiments so you know that the unique upper brain that humans have where we have empathy you don't get that in any other species certainly not any noticeable level we have moral codes we have ethics and we have conscious choice of our behavior so i, I i'm always I know they're going to happen. I know you're going to have reward and consequence in every environment. I know that's there. So I'm not I'm not naive enough to say that we we get rid of all that. But there has to be more because human beings are much more than rats. And we need to focus on the cause of the behavior, not just treating the behavior itself. And for the, some of the children I work with, with extreme behavior, I have to say that we've, we've been working with children that have you know, already been through the young offenders system, with children who have been you know, moved on from multiple foster carers because of their behavior, excluded from multiple schools. 
with us that the, the whole reward consequence thing does not work at all because they've had enough of that. And the only way we can work with these children is actually try, try and understand what the motivations for the behavior are and then try to steer and guide that child to give them choices. And only then can you reach that unique upper brain and actually help the child to understand their own behavior. And what, one of the key messages that we always have to say to our staff is not to take it personally, that if a child is saying that the, the tendency is that the children who are the least well behaved are the least likable. And that means that every adult in their life treats them the same preemptively being negative with them or or just you know responding with sanctions and when you actually look at the balance in their lives of what positive experiences they do have they're almost nil so sometimes it's a case of, of understanding why the child is doing what they're doing where they're coming from in terms of their past experiences or the childhood experiences and what we can do to show them that we're a different sort of grown-up and we're actually going to be a partner with them to help them towards more positive behavior so that they choose it rather than using the, the the simple reward and consequence which all it does is it conditions the child which in the same way you would a dog or a you know a rat and that doesn't hold we know this from subsequent experiments in dogs and rats etc the conditioning will only hold for a certain amount of time and then it slips so it's it's a really thorny subject we could probably talk about this this all all evening but for me it's about understanding why a child's done what they've done and then working backwards from that to try and support that child so they now have a choice to not do that um, and it is hard, you know. We we have children that have, there, there was um, a young lad who kept calling me swear words every other word. It was you know the really bad bad swear words as well, like the c word for instance. He called me that every other word. And but I'd read his profile. I knew exactly where he was coming from. His mum was a sex worker. His dad was a drug dealer. He'd been excluded from multiple schools. So I didn't let that bother me because I knew it wasn't personal. It wasn't aimed at me. And the funniest thing happened when we got him on um, a rope swing because we were doing outdoor stuff with these young people. And he, he got stuck halfway across the, the water. So uh, he, he couldn't go forwards or backwards. So he was over the water. And he just, out of nowhere, called me by my actual name for the first time. He just went, Ben, will you help me? In this really kind of very kind of almost feeble voice, this very tough young man suddenly sounded in desperate need. So, I mean, I am uncomfortable with being called a hero. But, you know, if you want to, that's fine. Um, no, I strode into the water muscles rippling well kind of sagging i picked him up and i carried him out and he never called me the c word again and it's not rocket science why it's you know it cost me nothing it was only an inch deep was the water you know so he was in no danger but he'd never in his life had an adult that had his back because every other adult had treated him with disdain uh, and aggression because that's how he was treating them and all it took was for me and my staff to not go back at him to stay calmed and it's not pleasant nobody likes to be called horrible names but from that moment on, he never, ever called me the C word again. And in fact, he would help us load up the van every single time we work with him for, for the next six weeks. So it's I'm not saying that that's that miraculous thing is going to happen with every, every child. Of course, it's not. You know, there is no miracle cure for behavior. Um, but I think understanding the behavior first rather than instantly reacting, it, it makes a huge difference because then you can tailor your reaction to actually give the child choices. Um, so the sad thing, sorry, I'm wittering on, but the sad thing about that story story was the foster carer came to pick him up that day. And the first thing he said was, uh, oh, who's that child? And what have you done with Lorenzo? Because he was loading up the van. So he teased him for actually doing positive behavior. And it just it just it makes you wonder, doesn't it? You know, that that foster carer could have chosen to be any role model that they wanted to in that moment. And yet they chose mean and, and there was no need for it. But it was just, you know, oh, it's only banter. It's harmless. But actually. You know that is not funny to that child and it's not going to improve his behavior 
so yeah i mean i think i think sometimes we we really need to take that moment and not not react straight away and think right all right why why have you done this because that's the only way we can really understand and help a child rather than constantly punishing I think one of the, the, the things that I, you know I got from the book and 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 some of the examples that you give, um, and I, you know I think is it oh, I'm terrible with names. I think Dave McPartland is it? The, oh yes, yeah. yeah. You know, and 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 teachers like that. When I see them, and I've worked in schools um, like that, and I, I remember talking to a, a couple of trainee teachers recently about science, and this isn't necessarily against science as a subject or science teachers. But I often like myself end up working with people, uh, young people who need re- reconnecting with their learning in a way yeah. that, that you describe in this book of joy is is what I think I've been talking about all along in my head. And to find the words through your book to describe that, because I said to them, you know, like you, you've seen poor behavior and so you've taken away the Bunsen burners, you've seen um them you know maybe messing around with their friends and so you've taken away the experiments and we're left with a not very enjoyable or all the joy aspects of it have gone and we're wondering why the the young people aren't engaging with it and and that's a really hard spiral to get out of oh it is and don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not under underplaying that the incredibly difficult job that teachers are currently doing because if you're faced with a class full of students who are aggressive violent even towards you and and you know because of their home experiences or because of of their their anxiety levels or their anger levels you know the, all of this joy stuff is going to seem a long long way away um, but but what i'm trying to say with the book is is that you know one of the only ways you can get them to actually choose pro-social behavior in the first place is if they re-engage their upper brain because the anger the anxiety actually disconnects that bit of the brain it makes us less good people automatically and there's lots of studies on that that you can look into so it's it's not an instant thing it's not an overnight thing but you're absolutely right if you can re-engage them back into the you know they, they're coming to that lesson thinking oh this this might be interesting this might be fun and it's a it's a such a hard cycle to break i know it is and i, I i've been there you know um i worked in a school with again it was a behavior wing of a school so they've got a whole wing for children with challenging behavior and I walked into the room with the teacher and the teacher, before they'd even said anything, shouted at them to tell them to behave and then left left the room and shouted, yeah, good luck. And then closed the door with me in front of these 15 year olds. It's a cycle. It's that everybody's reinforcing the cycle. I'm not blaming that teacher because they'd have been abusive to that teacher the day before. So she's been abusive to them that day. And you keep it going. And sometimes it just takes one adult to stop and go, no, they are not trying to be badly behaved. They've not got up in the morning and gone. Do you know what? I'm going to I'm going to behave in such a way today that nobody likes me. No child ever does that. What they're doing is they're trying to find their way in a really difficult world and they're doing what works for them. If they feel so massively disempowered that the only way they can get power back over their life is to make you feel rubbish as a teacher, that's not that's not them deliberately behaving negatively. That's them grasping at straws. That's them desperately trying to do anything they can. And that's why, you know, teenagers in particular will make the teacher's life hell. And it's because it's their one chance to get some power back. But if we don't let them have that power by making them enjoy being with you, enjoy your learning, then they don't do it in the first place. And I know it's hard. I can I can understand how difficult it is. And, you know, my heart goes out to anybody that's in a classroom where they're banging their head on a brick wall every day, not able to teach because the behavior is so extreme. And a lot of that is down to COVID. It's down to environmental conditions. So yeah, yeah. it's hard. 
No, no. As we start turning the corner, and I, you know, I do promise we, we we lift at the end with some very positivity. But I wanted to ask you before we get there, and a very positive book filled with wonderful examples of, of, of joyful activities. And uh, you know, I, I was excited just you know to try them, just reading it. But I wanted to ask you about the sort of the barriers to joy. You've mentioned a couple there, sort of a you know, of a kind of the the banter element, or maybe kind of a you know a, a putting down element. Where where do we get it wrong? Uh, in schools at the moment? It's a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because I don't think it's that we're fundamentally getting it wrong. I think that we're, that we're so caught up in in the outcome-driven stuff. And it, it's interesting when you, when you work with special schools that have a, a lot more leeway in terms of those outcomes, you, you'll see them using a lot more of these joyful techniques, you know, because they know that if a lesson isn't working, then there's no amount of keeping going over the same stuff is going to engage their children. So they know if it's failed, you, you run outside in the sun and you chase ladybirds because that's the only way to get those children back on track. And I think maybe we, we need to take a leaf out of, out of their book because I think one thing we now know is if things aren't working, keeping doing the same thing is not going to. But because we're so caught up in the, well, I've got to get these children to this level by this time or they've got to achieve this particular outcome, we, we keep focusing on the outcomes and we lose sight of, of the, the, how we get there in the first place. And I think that's one of the biggest barriers is that it's too much of a goal focused process. It's, it's all about the goals and it's not about the experience. And let's be honest, don't we want our children to have a, a positive experience of life, not just of school or of early years? We want them to enjoy their lives. And if we can focus a bit more on that, I don't think you lose the outcomes. I think you get better outcomes. You know, the, the attendance debate that was on the news. You know, at no point in that article or any of the government studies or any of the training did they go, well, well, why is it children don't want to be in school? It's because they don't enjoy it. You, you wouldn't. It's, it's like if you're in the workplace and you've got a member of staff who's taking repeated sick days, the, the chances are it's because they're struggling with, with the workplace. So it's the same with children. And it's, you know, it's if we address that, then you wouldn't get as much absences. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, that's the barrier is it's just just the adult world, really. We're all a little bit too grown up, aren't we, in our outlook? Yeah, I, you know, I, I do wonder, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, I, I, history and, and your own experience of it. I, I, I was a geographer and I was a geographer because I, I didn't like history at school. I didn't enjoy history. I, and now I find great joy. Every night this past week, I've gone to sleep listening to a podcast about history a history podcast and this is something that I found no joy in at school like you know I, yeah. I um and I, I firmly believe now I, I, I would go so far as to say it's like um everyone enjoys history at some point but at some point we we, we maybe get it wrong and, and and put people off and that might be for me it was history it might be for maths it might be for uh, someone else English or language yeah. Um, yeah. You know, particularly modern foreign languages, I think, maybe suffer from this. Um, so there must be something there where we're, we, it's not clicking, maybe. Yeah. And, and again, it, it's back. back I, I honestly believe it's back to joy. I think if, if you know, my, my history teacher back in the day, without being critical, it, it was dull. So I dropped history. It's not because I didn't like history. And, and you know, my mum was a bit disappointed because she was a history teacher that I dropped history because she she found it amazing. She loved she was a massive Richard III fan. So she obviously she she died before the, the body was discovered in the car park. She'd have loved all that. But she she would talk about Richard III so passionately. You got caught up, um, caught up in it. She actually um, years ago got stopped by the police and she, she was speeding slightly. 
and I was sat next to her and the police came out and as he was talking to her saying, you know, you've been speeding, he's, he's you know, writing his ticket. He saw a Richard III book on the back of the car and he went, oh, you were you into Richard III then? And they started talking about Richard III and he let her off because <laughs> she'd met a police officer and they talked so passionately about Richard III and where the battlefield might be or it might not be. But, you know, so that's that's what history's like. And yet I got none of that in high school because I had to teach who, who taught it like... Um, you know, in Harry Potter, the, the teacher, the, the ghost teacher that's died and then just carried on teaching, history of magic teacher. That's what it was like. It was just recounting things over and over again, dates and facts with no no joy. Um, so, yes. Sorry. Sorry about the bizarre, bizarre story about my <laughs> mum. I don't know where that came in. But. No, but I think, you know, it, it, it sparked with me this sh- the, the, the shared act of joy that it that it is a it's a there is a social element to it then and I think that comes through in the book. Hello. Oh, sorry. I think we lost you. Just it went a little bit clicky for a second there, Ben. Yeah, sorry. Okay? It's, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, my um, earphone earphone just dropped out my ear, so just had that that panic. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry. You were saying. Um, I, I, I was I was just asking about the the shared aspect of joy, the fact that it's it's almost a social thing. Yeah, I, I think w- w- what we now know about things like the nurturing system, for instance, it, it is in all mammals. We all look out for each other instinctively. It's part of what makes mammals successful. But actually, we now know that shared social experiences are, are a lot more powerful than perhaps we thought. So those moments that we throw away, you know, the sitting around the dinner table, eating together, that, that's declined so massively in society. The, the sitting, watching a beautiful sunset together or, you know, or, or exercising together or dancing together, singing, all of that. I think we, we, we've kind of lost track of how massively important that is. And those shared social experiences are, are so rich for not just brain growth and, and well-being, but also for, for actually making us human, you know. And I think if you think about a society where, where for instance, you know, for two years we had less smiles just because of masks, you know, that, that we don't know the full effects of that, but we know it, it can't be good for our children. So, um, so yeah, shared social experiences. Um, are amazing, and and it's something we we need to have more of, not less. And I I wanted to ask you because a, a really interesting part of your work, you know, is, is training staff who and and I want to choose my words for this sort of carefully because who who are with the children over the, their break times, you know, and and uh, so we, you know I've seen many different approaches to this, and and often called supervision or duty, and and it maybe yeah. suggests a kind of sentry or on guard. I've also seen sort <laughs> yeah. of the other the the other end. You know, don't do anything. You are just supervise. You know, you're you, you're the guard. Um, I, I've seen the other end where we went really structured with break times, and it was rule based games. You know, and 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 you could yeah. only you know follow those bits, and and neither of those I really liked. And I, and I wanted to ask you about your opinions on that. You know, we call it a break time. But I guess in, in, in your sense, in our working on their joy, it's probably an incredibly important time. Yeah, I mean, you know, ne- neurologically, we, we now know that those those free play opportunities that my child gets at lunchtime are potentially more powerful for growing the brain than the actual lessons. And you build the infrastructure for all the other stuff you need, like the mathematics and the speech and language, you build it through play. So, yes, we do. We do training for midday supervisors, uh, for classroom assistants, as well as the teaching staff and, and how to make lunchtime an oasis of play uh, to help children emotionally reset and actually, you know, explore and 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 have fun so that they can now be more academic afterwards, if that makes sense. 
And, and that's one thing there is quite a bit of research on. So, for instance, in America, uh, six states have banned the practice of taking away a child's recess or, or lunch as a punishment because they're citing academic studies that show that you do better in academic tasks if you have a break. It's not rocket science. But so, yeah, so what we try to make our lunchtimes in the schools that we support is, is that oasis of play. And it's about children engaging with a whole load of resources, but just being children. And the adults are there not to take over play, not to tell them what to do, but as a resource if needed. And uh, and it, it's it's lovely when you see it. If I was in a school in Leicestershire just last week and, and it was just a, a, a wonderful moment of chaotic joy and there were no behaviour instance because all the children were fully engaged. And that's it. Once you're playing, you tend to forget to misbehave. It's one of those knock-on effects of the projects we do is, is that, you know, our, our primary behaviour strategy is to make sure the children forget to misbehave because they've had so much fun. So, yeah, lunchtimes are massively important. And also with neurodivergence, you know, if you have, like me, any kind of neurodivergent conditions, then you're looking at that clock and you're using the break as a lifeline. It's the one thing that you know is going to make you be able to focus for that last few minutes because you know there's a break coming up. And then you make one mistake, and as a punishment, you lose your break. And that is one of the most heartbreaking and soul-destroying experiences. And I remember it still clearly. I mean, it actually makes me feel, you know, I get that dread on me even thinking about that. And that's, you know, 45 years ago we're talking about now. So, um, yeah, oasis of play. It's what it needs to be. There needs to be joy at lunchtime. Because for some children, it's the only time, especially if that child goes home and, and that, that joy is absent, not not blaming anybody, but society itself. You know, if you're a family deciding whether to feed your family or, or heat your home, then there's going to be precious little joy because you're anxious. So that lunchtime could be so special for children and that break. And if we throw it away, then, you know, that's a really missed opportunity, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, almost... Um... I think the sad thing, you know, you describe it there as it, you know, it disappearing for me, it almost tends to go in like almost entirely the opposite direction where actually we, you know, we make them do the opposite of the, the complete opposite. So it will be sat still, you know, not, not yeah. even, a, you know, not even a not having the break and normal lesson time It's the, the complete opposite. And you will be sat still and you will be doing a, a mundane task maybe, yeah. you know, quite, quite literally the opposite of, 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 of the thing that was bringing, uh, bringing positivity to them. Yeah. Now, I mean, the nice I, thing at the moment, yeah, sorry, is that there's a lot no, of, no. there's a lot of people agreeing with, you know, get more fun at lunchtime, get children out more. So even like, like the world health organization is recommending that we don't lose, you know, lunchtimes or break. And in fact, you know, a lot of schools are shortening the lunchtime to get more academic stuff in. Well, the world health organization is saying, no, that is not a good idea because the benefits of, that simple outdoor play is incredible for everything from neurological growth to your eyesight. You know, we've got, uh, we're in the middle of a myopia epidemic because children are not going outdoors enough to, and that's what activates their eyes more effectively than, than artificial light. So the World Health Organization is saying that any practice that reduces outdoor time should be stopped immediately because if we don't stop the current trend by 2050, over half our children is gonna, are going to require spectacles or some other form of visual correction. So, you know, there's there's that the British Psychologist Society say that if you don't you know, if you take away a child's break or lunchtime, it's a breach of their human rights. So it's not just me. It's not just some weirdo with a beard saying it, it is. You know, a lot of people are saying that children need that. And we hadn't realised, I don't think, just how important that lunchtime is for our children's well-being, especially if they don't go home and have that play environment that perhaps older people had. You know, people who grew up in the 70s and 80s 
you you will you won't get that for many children now because you'll they'll go home the tv screen will come on and and that's it there's that's you know till bedtime so yeah I'm, I'm a big fan of lunch times and we try and make them absolutely amazing for children we do all sorts of things uh all sorts of old old-fashioned playground games and dressing ups the people don't think that lunchtime could be a, a good opportunity for imagination and and yeah you know you put some old bits of material out you've got children doing fashion shows at lunchtime think about the wonderful creativity that's going on that lighting up the brain like a firework display and it's just because you put some old hats and coats out that children can dress up at you know in lunchtime so yeah we, we do try and make them really really special now i wanted to end sort of as we move to the end of the show i wanted to sort of leave with some some, some uh, positive kind of things and i um some some uh, advice but I, d- I don't want to spoil the book um you know like so they people should go out and buy this book so i don't want to read out towards the end of the book you give 12 pieces sort of of, of advice i'll call them but you call them the principles of joy um and if you know were to look at them i don't suppose do you have it in front of you at the moment <laughs> no, I don't. Okay. You're going to ask me what they I'm are. Going to ask, I'm going to... Well, I was going to ask you to pick. Maybe uh, don't don't give them all. You know, let let let's not uh, you know put spoiler warnings out for people. They can they can find the, the the rest of them. But if you could pick maybe one or two things from there that you know um, teachers, school leaders maybe can do to be more uh, joy focused um, from these principles of joy, what would you be suggesting? So, um, firstly, I, I think that it's, it's quite funny that, um, that you're expecting me to remember a book that I've written uh-huh. myself. And I was in a position recently where I've written a children's song. Um, that's another long story in itself, but I've written a children's song. It's actually in the book about joy. And that came about by accident. But we were in a position where we were singing this song. And it, the, myself and the lady that had written the music were at the Childcare Expo. We were asking song, and neither of us could remember the, the words to the song. That even the people had written the song. So even you know, so I don't, I couldn't tell you all twelve. But the thing that I think I'd like to leave it with, if we want to leave with something fun, is I think it's I don't I think joy doesn't always follow the rules. I think sometimes it's the adult who's willing to bend the rules and be a bit mischievous about things that can really get through to children. And and I, I love it when some, you know when a teacher realizes, do you know what this isn't working? let's let's go and have a, a, a water fight outside in the summer or let's let's do this but let's do it in the wooded area or or, or let's play a game instead and I, I, it's just that ability to throw the rule book out the window and do what's really important for children so uh, for me personally in my career i've worked with children with, with you know all sorts of different behavior but it is the mischievous ones that i remember you know you know the children those young children who've got that twinkle in their eye but you wouldn't dare leave them alone with felt tip pens i think they're awesome children and I mentioned in the book that I worked with a head teacher who described one little girl's really challenging behavior as glorious, glorious, but challenging is how we describe it. I think if we can see that bit of mischief, I think that that's the bit I'd like to leave people with. Let's, let's mix it up a bit. Let's, let's just have some fun. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I may get in trouble for, for sharing people who may, may, may shoot me down for this, but I, I was hit in the face with a plastic bottle this week at work. Okay, and you know that sounds terrible, and actually, you know, it, but it wasn't done on purpose. And a, a child was throwing a bottle to go in a bin, which probably they shouldn't have been doing by the strictest kind of following of our, our you know, the behaviour policy and everything. But they weren't doing it maliciously. They, you know, they were having a bit of a game, and so they're throwing it, and they they missed, and and really donked me in the face. And it made uh, that that noise that a plastic bottle with a lid on can make when it hits something. That kind of like donk 
right on yeah. my face and and shocked me and everyone looked and then everyone laughed and and I laughed I was actually almost in tears at that point because it you know it was a cheekier person who'd who, who'd done it maybe and but they hadn't done it with intent, malicious intent and then they were like well what, what are you going to do you, like and I had to go through this process then of kind of kind of like I can't like it's just it was just funny and I, I think that stuck with me that we all just laughed and 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 kind of moved on, and and maybe a younger me or a more panicked me would have been, you know, phoning the, you know, some sort of behaviour sanctions and things and yeah. stuff and getting frustrated and annoyed. And actually, it was quite a, as you almost, you know, as you say, sort of glorious moment of just pure slapstick comedy. Yeah. And you probably achieved better behavior out of those children by treating it that way than you would have done if you had, you know, done the sanctions. So, yeah, I've got a lovely image in my mind now um, of you being hit in the face with a bottle. I mean, we've all been there as well, haven't we? You know, um, <laughs> it, was, I, I, it was probably the first time in a while that I've been in, like, just in tears of laughter. And they were like, you're okay. I was like, I'm fine. It's just, you hit me in the face with a bottle. Yeah, like I was just like, oh, I just can't. Um, now, you know, we, we've talked about the, the the sort of you know the general the, the the bigger picture, and there's certainly some stuff in the book that that I think leaders would be able to take away and really, you know, think about and and think about how they they establish that over the long term. But we'll also have you know some teachers and some people maybe who want to 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 jump onto this at the end and in the d- introduction to your book you say um joy is, is a concept that can be the fundamental difference between a child struggling and a child thriving and i think you know there may well be listeners who want to 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 really get onto that and immediately and as at a classroom level as well as at a school level which might take longer but you know if we've got listeners what what, what could they start doing from tomorrow to, to, to start bringing more joy in into the children in their care's lives? Oh, there's so many different things. But the first thing is to actually acknowledge that life can be joyful. Because if we're going in with the stressed, you know, day-to-day grind, which we're all guilty of, then at first we've got to actually realise, do you know what? Today, what I'm teaching can be amazing. This is really interesting stuff. And so it's a, it's a more of a change in our own attitudes first. It, it's a decision to to be not quite so grown up about it. I mean, I use this example in the book, but my daughter once said to me, um, "Daddy, that's the best mushroom ever," and I heard myself say, "Well, don't touch it; it's dirty." You know, I'm not proud of that, but that's that's the adult mentality. So the first way in which we can bring joy to our children is actually bring get get ourselves joyful, get ourselves excited about the world because there is there is so much awe and wonder in the world, but we forget because the grown up world gets gets so gets us down, doesn't it? So that's the first thing. Yeah, always look at look at what we're doing and start to recognise that joy again. And that hopefully will help us to, to be happier as well. And when children are modelling, then on the adults in their life, if they're modelling on that joyful adult who points out your and wonder to them, then their brains will actually begin to synchronise with yours. And we now know that from all these all the studies in, in you know in early childhood. So so yeah, just just let's try to give them more joy in a dismal world. And, uh, you know, aside from obviously getting themselves out there and, uh, and buying the book that is available, it's called Why Children Need Joy. If people wanted to reach out to you, um, you know, hear more from you, how could they find you? 
Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's the easy website uh, www.inspiredchildren.org.uk. Um, the website's just been updated, so there might be the odd teething trouble. So if it doesn't appear, try again later. Um, and then just yeah, email people. Email me all the time with stuff, and that's just uh, Ben Kingston at inspiredchildren.org.uk. Um, or, or just Google Inspired Children, and it'll come up with with us. Um, and I'm always happy to hear from people if they've got questions or queries. Uh, we're so busy at the moment that, that it takes me days to get back to people, but I always get back to people if they've got questions. Fantastic, and you know, thank you so much for coming on. And it, as I say, it really is a joyous book. It was a, an, an enjoyable book, which I don't, I you know, I, I don't often get to say about reading educational stuff. But you know, the the, the stories, and you know, as as I go through, you know, I'm just, I'm just flicking through. There's the, to describe it to the people. Every so often, there's there's these kind of little sections where it has either a, a, an anecdote or a, or a, or a piece of advice or you know a story from your own lives that, that really bring it to life and, and it, it really sort of brought back a passion for me for, for for this kind of work so you know thank you so much for putting this together oh, it's an absolute pleasure and, and i wanted it to read not like a textbook i wanted it to read that something you'd want to read for it for itself as well um and it's it's very hard work to do that but i think i think hopefully that that's how it comes across it comes across as somebody who's genuinely passionate about you know outcomes for children but not as a textbook although a lot of universities are picking up the the first book now as as a textbook but it was never intended for that um so yeah if you like if you like a a more conversational style uh and you like you like books that are are designed for people with short attention span then then this is the one for you isn't it so um so yeah yeah it's certainly as i say you know it's a, a great read for me and i really enjoyed it it's going on uh my, my my shelf at work um to to lend out to as many people as as possible um and uh, so we've just had a message in there just from uh paul one of our listeners there, just saying i found it harder and harder to plan and teach lessons that are in the bracket ben is talking about so i'm so glad someone's banging that drum and and, and trying to make them uh, make them happen again. So, you know, really positive feedback there. Um, and okay. so, I, you know, from here in South Wales, we, like the Welsh for, for good night is Nostar. I should I should probably have explained that before I say it. So uh, from me in Swansea here, uh, thank you uh, so much for coming on, Ben. And Nostar. Uh, Nostar to all of you guys as well. Oh, well, you, you know, I really appreciate you, uh, you know, joining back in there. You didn't you didn't have to go with the Welsh, but that's the, the, the joy. I, I love language learning at the moment. And again, something that I didn't enjoy at school, but playing around with words just seems to bring so much fun. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thank you again and uh, thank you to all our listeners you'll be able to if you're listening live you'll be able to hear this as a podcast at ttradio.org very shortly Uh, from here good night nostar and we'll see you next time thanks a lot thank you